to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. The rise of the conscious consumer is often spoken about in marketing and communication circles. However, it has started to become more prevalent in sponsorship discussions as well, especially as brands continue to look for ways to be authentic, not just in their sponsorships, but their wider marketing and engagement as well. Part of the complexity around the conscious consumer is their expectation that brands stand for something, that they believe in something and that they will actually do something about it. As such, if brands don't stand, believe in and do something around social causes, then these days they are at a massive disadvantage from the get-go, let alone their sponsorships that they may be trying to kick off and engaging new markets or fan segments. Brands that come to mind in recent times include Dick's Sporting Goods, removing guns from their stores, and Gillette's Is This the Best a Man Can Get ad, and the subsequent corporate social responsibility program that they kicked off. But the nagging question is, can brands and rights holders truly achieve great, commercially beneficial sponsorship where a cause is integral to it and is positively impacted. One man who thinks they can is John Balkum, who has written a great book called Three Win Sponsorship, The Next Generation of Sports and Entertainment Marketing. And he joins us later on in the show to discuss in detail how to create and execute sponsorships that achieve commercial goals for brands and rights holders while not just treating the cause element as an afterthought and instead truly integrating it. I'm Daniel Oyston and welcome to episode 81 of Inside Sponsorship. I hope that intro has really piqued your interest because personally, I loved having this chat with John and I hope it inspires you. It is great to have you listening into the show. I have a shout out, which for regular listeners of the show know, makes me very happy because I love hearing from you. Even if it's just to say, hi, I listen to the show and this is where I work. And that is exactly what Alex Loeb did on LinkedIn. And he wrote to me and he said, I enjoy the podcast from Greenville, South Carolina as the Clemson University Multimedia Rights Holder. Alex, thanks for getting in touch and I'm glad you enjoy the show. And I hope all is well in Greenville, South Carolina. Before we hear from John Balcom and all about three win sponsorships, Cause Sam Irvine, Director, Customer Strategy and Success, Australasia, joins us to discuss his latest blog, which asks and answers the question, governing body versus pro team, which has a greater commercial advantage? Here's Sam. Sam Irvine, welcome back to the show. Daniel, thanks for having me. We record these this particular show well in advance. What do you think you've been up to for the last couple of weeks? <laughs> Couldn't mean anything. Hopefully, I've gone away on a break, actually. Yes, that hasn't been signed off on. Now, I was in your interview when you were employed. So I know that you've been you lucky were there. Enough. You weren't contributing much, but you were there. <laughs> I was taking the notes. So I do know that you've been lucky enough to work in the sporting commercial space with a huge variety of rights holders. That was one of the things that struck us about your background. So ranging right from volunteer clubs to governing bodies, right through to professional clubs around the world. So you have a good sense of what some of the opportunities and challenges and trends that 
can be seen across the two vastly different models of sporting organisations when we compare a governing body with a pro team. But recently, it's got your brain ticking over a little bit, hasn't it? It has, and I can't remember what really got me thinking about this, but over the last couple of weeks, it's really sort of dawned on me with the change of what brands are, you know, really focusing on their objectives rather than eyeballs. They're being smarter with some of their campaigns, being more targeted with who they're talking to. It's sort of changed it feels like there's been a shift around how a governing traditional governing body might be commercially advantaged now whereas in the past you'd be seen as potentially the poor brother or sister of a, of a pro team is because you're not on free-to-air tv or you don't have huge amount of um, registered fans etc so let's contrast the two to start with what can you tell us about governing body versus professional team in this space just to be clear when we when i say governing body it doesn't mean they can't have a professional team they work with or that they can't actually be professional in how they act either the contrast i'm trying to sort of identify here is a body that would traditionally be in charged with managing the sport from a competition perspective like running a national competition yeah someone who's really looking after the game and development of itself because it's not just focused on the actual uh, execution of the sport there's development pathways there's officiating those sorts of things all those areas that really go together to look after a whole big picture of, of sport rather than a, a team or, or a pro team or we're going to call for today for argument's sake are more focused on on-field performance commercial sustainability of uh, you know one or two teams at, at most and so i think there's a real contrast in how you operate operationally sorry how you really operate in that space and that then influences what that looks like for you commercially i think as well so they've got different priorities how do they present themselves as different commercial scenarios so i think an example within a governing body perspective is that they have so many mouths to feed per se they've got your officiating um you know department they've got your um uh, legal departments to look after they've got an international team as well as a development team as well as coaches external suppliers maybe lots of internal staff spread across a large geographic area the geographic coverage you're right exactly the same same sort of impact that might have on where the money goes and how much money can go into a actual commercial development into fan engagement, new technologies. How do we then invest in people that can bring bigger and better commercial partners to our table? So I think that's a one big space that, that, that they, they're quite sort of contrasting in there as well and the role that governing bodies play in that space. What about in terms of the value in partnering with each one? How do they differ for a brand when they're looking at them? For me, a lot of the value comes from when you're a governing body comes from your huge registration database, the number of participants at your grassroots or at various levels that that you can talk to. I think that's where the value seems to come or where traditionally governing bodies have derived value for commercial partners. Whereas I think if you're a pro sport, you're really able to build on that brand loyalty. You're really able to build on that apathy from your fans and ability to turn them into consumers for your brands so i think they're they're not contrasting they can complement each other but traditionally in the past they've definitely been two quite different value propositions for brands i think what about access to talent is it 
change much considering they're a governing body and sometimes they're actually the ones employing the people out in the pro team i think a lot of the time depends on how smart or how different the governing bodies have contracted with player unions for example right if if they've got um if the major contract let's talk about rugby australia for example the major contract might be with the wallabies or rugby australia and then the um supplementary contract comes with the super rugby team so that might influence how much access you've got to players coaches that type of talent from a commercial perspective but i i also think the day-to-day contact the length of seasons the number of games the number of engagements that a pro team has with that talent really puts them at an advantage of being able to access that talent on a day-to-day basis of course makes sense what about if we focused on talking about the differences or contrasting the use of agencies and third parties to get things done in this commercial space it's uh, it's an interesting space because both types of bodies or organizations have started to dabble much more in the agency or third-party provider space. The one thing that really shone out to me from my role when I was traditionally working in a governing body was the increased emphasis we would put on a third party for one-off, big-off events, game day delivery, if it was a really big spectacular event, and the support from an agency in that space. So, I mean, when we think about agencies now, we're talking about commercial partner acquisition agencies, reporting, strategic agencies that provide us project leadership, those types of things. And and I feel like in general, when it comes to game day, I mean, I say game day, when it comes to delivery of, of big off commercial events, governing bodies are more reliant upon a third party than what a traditional pro sport might be. They're doing it more day to day. A home game, although we try to differ them week to week, becomes more of a templated event for a pro team than it might be for, for a governing body, I think. But that being said, one of the other trends we're seeing is that both types of bodies are really engaging commercial agencies, digital partners in, in that digital and fan acquisition fan activation space because the technology is changing so quickly the trends that we're seeing from consumers aren't stagnant at all they're definitely changing so quickly and then the insights that we want to see from the our whole industry well and and this that the sponsors are demanding from rights holders there's no excuse we have the ability to build our own audience and really collect a lot of demographics about them and tell really clear stories and uncover trends so that we can position them to brands and rather than us as an organization trying to fill those gaps with uh, new resources new team members investing heavily in in technology that we might know might not know is going to work that's where i think as an industry wide we've become more reliant upon third parties and it makes so much sense the efficiencies that creates make so much sense for me so some of it's the same some of it's different some of it's in the middle and it's gray how do the challenges start to present themselves in this space there's various and depending at what level you are uh, you know a governing body if you're comparing equestrian to to the nrl you know they're going to have different challenges in that space but i think what with if you're a governing body i think run a really the ability to invest heavily into commercial partnerships or into new technology or new ideas given the number of mouths you have to feed and given the fact you've got to spread that money so thinly across is probably a big challenge for a governing body and then contrasting that with with a pro sport team or club i guess in a new age partnerships model there's an emphasis upon community engagement building an audience 
And there might be an argument that perhaps an actual governing body has a way bigger database to talk to. They've got a huge registration participation database to talk to compared to what a pro team might have. So not having those huge numbers that we all talk about as far as eyeballs might be a, a challenge commercially for a pro team, I think. Some people look at challenges, they throw their hands up in the air, it's all too hard, we can't do it. Other people look at it and think, geez, there's some opportunities that present themselves here. What do you see as the opportunities considering the challenges that we just spoke about? What a governing body really needs to turn those niche programs they run, the multicultural diversity programs, game development, that Olympic team they've got to send over to Tokyo as their point of difference. So they're no longer about a day-to-day team that plays at home, plays away. They're a completely different commercial opportunity for those brands that might want to talk to them. And then to complement that, They've got that huge database of participation numbers. And then they've got multiple chances to interact with those individuals. So let's make sure we've got some clean, some thorough data around name, gender, what that is their income might be, what it might be, other likes, other trends that those consumers or your participation database has. So let's get smarter with data and then let's go out to brands and actually show them how we can do a targeted campaign because we've got rich data, we've got a high number of people that we're talking to and we've got something different other than your traditional home and away season, et cetera. I highly doubt you're going to give me an answer that puts you on one side of the fence as opposed to the other. So here's your opportunity to give a real politician's answer. Where would you rather be? I, th- I thought about this and and I genuinely had the grass is always greener mentality back when I was working in governing body space. I feel, and I'm going to sit on the fence here, I feel like the we're really seeing the rise of those rights holders that can access both sides of the fence. Those that can utilize certain assets from governing bodies, whether it be a large participation database or a niche development you know, program, you know, a female side of a sport that's starting to develop, those types of things. But they can also piece with it together some player appearances from you know, high-profile players or uh, the ability to utilize some eyeballs where needed and piece together different commercial partnership opportunities based on obviously a completely different objective depending on the brand you're talking to. So that's where I feel like if you can be smart enough to work with both sides of the fence, if you can be smart enough to actually, or lucky enough at times, have access to governing body and pro team assets, that's where you're really going to get a whole heap of leverage and a whole heap of growth, I think. Nirvana. Listeners, if you'd like to read through those thoughts in slow time and in detail, just head to callsoftware.com. Sam, this is recorded so far in the future. As I said to you, what do you think you've been doing for the last couple of weeks? What do you think you've got coming up in the next couple of weeks? Uh, I think I've got... Must be Christmas. Uh, hopefully not. Goodness. Depends when uh, when we do get the other guest online. I think whether we've just had a conference down in Melbourne, our sports analytics conference that we're partnering with the wonderful guys down in Melbourne there with hopefully getting to, I'm going to say this now, I'm going to get to go back to New York and Mark's going to sign off that one when he hears this uh, new podcast. So Very good. Have you had a holiday in between? Yes. Yeah, I've definitely gone to the Gold Coast. I'm hoping that's happened. Busy, busy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Part of the complexity around the rise of the conscious consumer is their expectation that brands stand for something and that they believe in something and that they will actually do something about it. As such, if brands don't stand, believe in and do something around social causes, then these days they are at a massive disadvantage from the get-go, let alone their sponsorships that they may be trying to kick off and trying to engage new markets or fan segments. But the nagging question is, can brands and rights holders truly achieve great commercially beneficial sponsorship where a cause is positively impacted? And it's not just an afterthought. One man who thinks they can is John Borkham, who has written a great book called Three Win Sponsorship, the next generation of sports and entertainment marketing. And he joins us now to discuss in detail how to create and execute sponsorships that achieve commercial goals for brands and rights holders, while not just treating that cause element as an afterthought and instead truly integrating it. Here's John. John, we always ask a few icebreaker questions and in your book, which you're on the show to talk about, we're going to chat a lot about in this episode. There's a section in the book that talks about the history of modern sponsorship. And I'm curious as your icebreaker question, what is your favorite part of that history? What's the one thing that really stands out for you and is interesting? One of the my favorite parts of studying the history of sponsorship was learning all about uh, Peter Uberoff and the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. And it was really interesting to learn about because the Olympics had been in peril. There was multiple years where it was a financial disaster or there was a major issue. You know, like for example, there was a, a major hostage crisis and terrorism crisis in previous Olympics. But in 1984, Peter Uberoff, who's this entrepreneur from California, really kind of saved the Olympic movement. And in the process, he almost invented the category sponsorship model. So that was really amazing to learn about. I didn't realize that that was kind of an inflection point in the history of sponsorship. Um, But the cool thing about it is that it was also a really beneficial event for for charity. Uh, They made such a big surplus on the event that they were able to establish the LA 84 Foundation, which has been granting money every year since 1984 and really making a huge impact on the Los Los Angeles community and on uh, the greater U.S. community. So I really enjoyed learning about uh, LA 84 and Peter Uberoff. 1984 was a fair while ago for most of us. And so speaking of history, what is the earliest sponsorship that you can remember seeing? I'm from Washington, D.C., and there's an arena that was built downtown in downtown Washington for the basketball team and the the National Hockey League team here in D.C., and it was called the MCI Center. And so it was a naming rights sponsorship, and my family and I, you know, we we had the pleasure to go to MCI Center a ton to go watch our, our favorite team, the Georgetown Hoyas. So I remember the NCI Center. And that was uh, that company was a telecommunications company uh, that eventually got bought by Verizon. So the arena became the Verizon Center. But that was really the only thing that that, uh, that stood out back in the day. But I do, do have fond memories of going to the NCI Center back when I was a kid. Well, now that we're in present day, we've got you on the show to talk about your book. And it's titled Three Win Sponsorship, The Next Generation of Sports and Entertainment Marketing. Tell us, what do you mean when you say three win? In any sponsorship deal, there's almost always three parties, 
right? There's a brand who's providing the sponsorship and who wants to get the marketing return. There's usually a property or talent who is receiving the sponsorship revenue and then delivering on the sponsorship. And then there's a target market, which is usually a very specific audience. But what I think I learned in in the process of of getting ready for this book is that the target market or the audience uh, often doesn't see a ton of the value in sponsorship. And in fact, I thought that because of the way that consumer behavior is changing, and we can talk a little bit about that later, that sponsorship really should be all about how can we create impact for the target market? How can we make a positive impact on the lives of people and and the planet through sponsorship and then communicate that through the marketing channels? You know, I, I felt like there hadn't been a whole lot of innovation in sponsorship over the past several years. But as consumers started to care more about things like a company's purpose and uh, the value that they create outside of just their business, I felt like there needed to be an emphasis on this third win, that the, the value that the brands and the properties are creating for the target audience. So uh, I think of it as three win, three win sponsorship is a mindset and it's a methodology to make sure that we're creating good for society through the platform of sponsorship. There's a lot of great stuff to unpack in this space, but I wanted to set the scene a little bit, almost create an anchor point of sorts and and ask why those of us in the sponsorship industry should be looking for three-win sponsorships as opposed to maybe the easier, the, the, the more purely commercial-focused traditional sponsorships. In this day and age when there's so much content out there and there's so many different polls on people's attention, in order for you to break as a marketer to break through the noise and make anyone care about your sponsorship activation, you have to have a three win mindset. So if you're spending money on sports sponsorship, this is something that you're going to want to do and need to do to break through, right? It's not about just putting logos uh, on billboards or, or, or putting your brand in the experience where, where you want to talk to the fan. It's about, how how do you get this fan to care about your brand? Right? Why why do, why should a consumer care about your brand? So to me, I think the the old fashioned way of doing sponsorship is is effective up to a point, but in today's age, you have to have this mindset of all right, what value can we bring to our target market? What value can we bring to society? And then tell that story to to the target audience that we want to talk to. To me, I think we have to to shift towards a three-win mindset if we want to really uh, get the attention of today's consumer. And as you know, it's super challenging (laughs) to get people's attention. So I feel like that's why today's sponsorship professionals should really think about this three-win methodology as they're building out their activations. You're right. It is very hard to get people's attention and just as hard to maintain it and and keep them engaged once we have it. So let's set a a good example out there for the listeners so that we have a reference point for the rest of the chat. What is one of your favorite three-win sponsorship examples? There is one that that I studied for the book that was really, really cool. And it was a partnership or a sponsorship with Hellman's, which is actually 
a Unilever mayonnaise brand and Toronto football club. So it was uh, an example from our, from our friends up in the North and Hellman's decided that they really wanted to tackle the problem of food waste, which is a major problem in, in the country of Canada. And they had been investing in several different food waste programs for many years, but I believe it was two years ago, they decided, how do we get this in front of our target audience? How do we actually tell this story of the problem of food waste in Canada? And so they decided to team up with Toronto FC, uh, which is an MLS football club in Toronto. And they said, let's, let's go get some food from, from local restaurants that would normally have been thrown out. Right. And then let's, let's use that food to feed a stadium. Right. So during a Toronto FC football game, let's go get the food from the, from the restaurants that would have been thrown out. Let's make it into a delicious meal and then let's serve it to the fans at the game. So that's what they did. And then the, the way they, they kind of brought it back around and got fans to know about the issue of food waste is they handed out the food in the, at halftime of the Toronto FC game. And then they, they put a video on the big screen and it's, you know, it was the big reveal, right? Food waste is such an issue in Canada. And that's why Hellman teamed up with Toronto FC to, you know, get food from local kitchens to make this meal. And now you're eating it today. So it was a really cool way of talking about an important issue, an important social issue, an environmental issue in Canada, and making it very real for the fan, right? You should have seen. If you can, you can go watch the video on YouTube of Hellman's feeds the stadium, and you can see the reactions of the fans in the stadium, right? Some are shocked, some are, you know, amazed, some are, you know, clapping, and and they, you know, the fans gave a standing ovation at the end of this video. But that's what I mean by the power of having a third win in mind. In sponsorship, Hellman's did a, gr a great job with Toronto FC of really making that problem real, but showing how they're going to be uh, have a solution, right? Create a solution for food waste. So hopefully that gives you and your and the audience a, a good example for for the rest of the conversation. Yeah, it's a great example. And listeners, we will definitely put the embed code for the YouTube of the Hellman's Feed the Stadium example there in the show notes at coresoftware.com. So, John, what was the catalyst for, for writing the book? Was there was it a big idea that came to you in a flash of brilliance or, or was it a conversation that, that sparked it or had you just kind of been building it up in your mind over, an, over a period of time till you thought you had enough for a book? What was the catalyst? I, as I think back on what got me really passionate about this, I worked in the sports entertainment industry, but from a different angle when I started the book. I you know, have always been passionate about sports, and I had some experience working for the Washington Nationals and the Tiger Woods Foundation earlier in my career. But, but in the last three years, I worked at an education technology company called EverFi, and then we actually had a sports and entertainment division at EverFi where effectively we were running large-scale education programs on behalf of the NFL, the NHL, Major League Baseball. We were running these large-scale branded education programs 
for these leagues and teams. So I was almost, you know, at ever five, I like to think that we were kind of the third win partner uh, for many of these teams. And, and oftentimes sponsors would get involved in these. So I started to realize as I was uh, going about my business at EverFi and helping teams and leagues and sponsors implement social impact into their deals, I started to realize that community impact was often an afterthought in sponsorship deals, right? It was often thrown in at the end of the deal. So, you you know, a brand and a, and a team will be negotiating a sponsorship deal. They'll get almost to the finish line. They'll say, oh, yeah, and we'll throw in a community impact element. We'll figure out the details later, but, you know, let's just get this deal done. We'll figure out community when we have some time. And there's a term in, in Major League Baseball here in the U.S. Uh, when, uh, when there's a transaction and the teams, you know, they know what player they want to trade, but, you know, they say, let's just – we'll add a player to be named later. And, and my, my fellow baseball fans will know this term. But it's almost like, yeah, this isn't an important detail. Let's just throw this in later. So to me, it seemed like in the sponsorship space, community impact was the player to be named later in the deals. I felt like that was really a missed opportunity. And yeah, I, I would say there was one conversation I had back in August of 2018. You know, we, my, my teammate from Everfine I, we were meeting with someone uh, who worked at a, a sports marketing agency and we were telling them all about how, how Everfine creates value for sponsors and for teams. And he stopped us and said, wow, that's really amazing how you guys do things, you know, how you're implementing social impact on behalf of sponsoring teams. Everybody wants to do that in their sponsorship deals, but very few people actually make it a priority. So that conversation really kind of got me thinking, you know, is there something bigger here? Is there a bigger opportunity for sponsorship to really get better business results by integrating social impact into their deals. So that kind of led me onto the journey of, of doing research and interviewing people and finding the great stories out there that exemplify three-win sponsorship methodology. And now that you have the book, you've you've arranged modern sponsorship into phases with the mid-80s to the mid-90s being the awareness phase. Then came the activation phase in the 90s and the 2000s and then the content phase from the 2000s to the mid-2010s. And you argue that we are now in the purpose phase. What does the purpose phase look like? What, what have you written about there? The purpose phase to me means that Consumers don't care about your sponsorship deals and activations unless your sponsorship activations show that you care about consumers, right? I think you'll see, you're starting to see this quite a bit, but more and more over you know, 2020 and going forward, you're going to see more brands, teams, and athletes building purposeful sponsorship deals that are focused on things like sustainability and equality and inclusion, health and well-being, Right. To me, now we're, we're shifting into a phase of sponsorship where it, it, it can't just be about this brand is associated with this team or this brand is associated with this athlete. Well, why? What's, what's the purpose here? How are you making the world a better place? And why should I, as a consumer, care about this, this partnership? Right. That's what I, I mean by the purpose phase is that you're going to see 
uh, there's a bigger reason or there's a there's a bigger purpose behind these partnerships and you know there's some great examples that i've i've observed uh in in recent months that i think are kind of good templates for for people uh, as we shift into the purpose phase but maybe we can get in, into that a little bit later i love some of the examples that are coming out of the, the nba Excellent. You spoke before about the corporate social responsibility, the CSR, and it's it's long been on the minds of those big brands, the ones that we that we see a lot, and they're they're prone to those high visibility sponsorships. I'm curious about your thoughts around why it's taken so long for organizations to realize that they can achieve sponsorship and corporate social responsibility objectives actually together rather than as separate pursuits? So to be honest, I have never worked inside of a large corporation, right? My background has always been in, in technology companies, startup companies, you know, small organizations. So I don't want to pretend like I can get in the head of the, the, the CSR uh, directors at big companies, but my 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 hypothesis here is that companies have never felt more pressure from consumers to have a larger purpose than than just growth and profits, right? And and because of all of that consumer pressure, this has made companies who utilize sponsorship realize that if it's going to be a worthwhile investment, they need to infuse their CSR messaging into their sponsorship strategy, right? I think you're starting to see this awakening almost that the CSR department, the marketing department are, are should be sitting right next to each other or, or almost should be under the same roof because consumers are saying, why should we care about the company? What are you doing to make our community better? What are you doing to, to help the environment? That's why I think we're starting to see more and more that CSR isn't just in its own silo. It's it's a part of your marketing. It's a part of how you recruit talent to your organization. So it's an exciting time if you've been a CSR professional, because now I think you're starting to get a lot more, a lot more work and a lot more expo- exposure uh, within the, the top levels of, of corporations. Absolutely. Now, in the book, you started to touch on it there with consumers wanting to be more conscious about the choices that they're making around brands and, and specifically asking brands, what are you doing in these spaces? Because in the book, you, you discuss the rise of the conscious consumer and it's not a new concept. Most of us working in sponsorship and marketing and, and wider communications, we're grappling with it, some better than others. Why does it really signal, do you think, a new era in marketing instead of something to just make us sound important because we can put a label on it, you know, just another buzzword? It's a new era because consumers are making buying decisions based on the values and behaviors of companies. You know, I find myself uh, doing this, you know, really thinking about and being intentional about which companies do I buy products from? Which companies do I utilize their services? Are they, are they, you know, responsible? Are they, are they uh, not contributing to, to the climate crisis? Are they, you know, treating their employees fairly? Are they good citizens in their community? So I think that this is a broader trend around Consumers are, are making both buying decisions and decisions on where they, they go to work based on, is this company a good citizen? Is this, a, is this company uh, part of the solution rather than being part of the problem? And the, the other thing is, this is a new era because of 
the empowered consumer on social media, right? If consumers and employees decide that they don't, they don't like how your company is behaving, they are empowered to go on Twitter, to go on Facebook at any time and tell all their friends and, and, and just the general public that your company's not behaving properly, right? And that's, that's a major issue if your company starts getting all kinds of flack on social media. So this new era of conscious consumerism and marketing is both about growth in your business, right? Attracting and retaining customers, but it's also about mitigating risk. So even if you don't really believe in the upside of, of, of purpose-driven marketing for your company, you would at least, you know, as a business leader, you at least have to acknowledge that there's risk to not being driven by purpose and not communicating your company's purpose within uh, your marketing messaging. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Now, as the book goes on, you move into what is the main part of the book, obviously. You outline that there are five principles to effective three-win sponsorship, the first one being intention, then authenticity, sustainability, measurement, and ownership. So if we are to approach this the right way, John, what is the right intention? Because I'm reminded of that conversation that you mentioned earlier with Tyler where he said about the deal being done and then and then looking at the purpose elements later and and that analogy that you made around the baseball. Yeah, so your your listeners may be familiar with the book uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People which was uh, I think his name was Stephen Covey made this book and it's kind of a classic in the business world. But one of the the seven habits in that book is kind of begin with the end in mind. And to me, that's a, a principle that can also be applied to three-one sponsorship methodology, right? The, the right way to, to use intention is to begin with the third win in mind, right? When you're starting a new partnership, think about what value can we bring to society? What does our target market care about? What do our employees care about? What good can we do in the world? So rather than throwing in a community impact, you know, activation, maybe a one-off activation at the end of the deal, or even once you've closed the deal, you know, start out with the intention of doing good. You know, really think about the problems in your community that you want to address and that you can, you know, you can address in a meaningful way. And that's what I mean by intention is from the very outset, if you're a brand and you're looking for new properties to sponsor, also think about what good do we want to do in the world? What, what does our audience really care about? And then go find a partner who's willing to, to work on that with you. It's really powerful to, to really rethink about your sponsorship strategy in terms of having the intention to do good. Because to me, that is the way that you will actually land and, and get in front of and get the attention of the consumer that you want to talk to as a company. I think it's great advice. And then we move into the second principle of a three-win sponsorship. It's authenticity. But as I kind of alluded to or, or I outrightly said with customer-centric, authenticity has also become a bit of a, a buzzword. It gets tossed around so frequently at, at marketing and sponsorship-related conferences and, and forums and, and the online content that we all consume that, unfortunately, it seems to have lost a bit of its meaning. What does it actually mean for a brand to be truly authentic in its sponsorships and marketing? Yeah, as a brand... 
I think there's a lot of questions that just a few questions that you should ask when you think about authenticity around sponsorship marketing. So if you're, if you want to attach a cause or, or make a cause, the intention of your sponsorship, ask yourself, you know, do, does our brand belong in this cause? Do we have a permission to be a part of the, the solution here? You know, do our employees care about this particular issue? Do our customers care? And, and does contributing to this particular cause, does it really help solve the problem? Does it make sense for our company to be a part of it? So when it comes to authenticity, I think it's looking in the mirror as a brand and saying, does this make sense? Does it, does it feel right? Is it, does it tie into our larger purpose as a company? And if you can answer those questions in the affirmative and it, it, everything seems to make sense and it really ties into the company's overall strategy, then absolutely go for it. But when you're not authentic and you, you're not kind of tying into a cause that is legitimately tied to the company's employees and, and, and what the customers care about, that's where you're going to get into trouble in sponsorship, right? You, you might get called out for, for being inauthentic by, by customers online. And, and it's really difficult to come back from that. If you, if consumers see like, Oh, this company isn't, isn't really into this. They, they're probably just trying to, they're probably just trying to, to sell something here. That's where you're going to really be in trouble. So authenticity is about, does this company, does this brand really belong in this conversation? And can it, does it have something positive to contribute? So we've, we've covered off, we've, we've begun with the end in mind with our intention. We've just spoken about authenticity. Next up in a three-win sponsorship is sustainability. And climate change is the biggest challenge facing the world ever. What role does sport have to play in things like climate change and, and sustainability when both sports and the brands that sponsor them traditionally, they're always hungry for growth in, in a in a it's a hyper competitive market as well. Are growth and environmental sustainability are they mutually exclusive or can they really be achieved simultaneously? Oh it's a it's a great question, Daniel. And I'm reminded of a quote by Paul Pullman, and he's the former CEO of Unilever. And what he said was that we cannot choose between growth and sustainability. We must have both. So in the sports business, this is not an either or. This is a both and, right? As a sports business, we should be thinking about growth through sustainability. And, and you can look no further than what Nike and Adidas are doing and they're making they're both making massive changes to their products and their business operations to be more sustainable they're literally competing to see who can build the most sustainable waste-free athletic shoes on the planet which i think is pretty incredible so so think about think about it this way though daniel like will any of the growth in the sports business and in the sponsorship space really matter if we reach a point of climate catastrophe Right. And to be, to put it bluntly, you know, there's really no sports business and there's no sponsorship if we don't have a healthy planet. So sustainability, and, and there's, there's a great story um, in the book. I talked to this gentleman, Dave Newport, who's been kind of at the, the cutting edge of sustainability at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He talks about how sustainability sells right? Consumers are eager to see 
what our companies are doing to be a positive force against the climate crisis. And, and I would encourage people to check out what Dave has been doing at University of Colorado and now with his new organization, Phase 3 Sports. I think this could be one of the most important, if not the most important, principle to think about in sponsorships going forward. I think it's a very important point, and I think you make a a good point around does any of it matter if we, we ultimately reach a climate catastrophe. So, John, it's hard to talk about sponsorship without talking about measurement these days, and that's the fourth principle of a three-win sponsorship. How is measurement the same or, or, or different in a three-win sponsorship? And I'm curious, are there, are there different things to measure compared to a traditional, maybe just purely commercially focused sponsorship? I don't know if uh, your, your audience or your, your listeners are going to be happy to hear this, Daniel, but there actually is a little bit more work to be done when you uh, use three-win sponsorship methodology because you're both going to be measuring your key business business metrics, your key marketing metrics from your sponsorships, right? Whether it be, you know, how many emails did we capture? What was our what were our engagement metrics on social media? What's our brand favorability rating, you know, post sponsorship activation? So you're absolutely still going to need to know the business metrics and the marketing metrics that you're measuring, but you're also going to need to know what social impact metrics you're measuring. So think about it this way. If, if you're using your sponsorship vehicle to invest in youth sport access, you know, you're going to have to measure what was the increase in, in youth that can access sport, right? If you're, if you're doing an education program through your sponsorship platform, you know, you have to understand what impact, what outcomes were created in education because of your sponsorship investment. So, a little bit extra work, but it's really important to, to measure both the business and the, the social impact metrics because they're tied together. You know, when you measure the impact that your investment has made, you can then communicate that back to consumers. And the measurement piece is really important because, and it's tied into authenticity because you can't just say as a brand, oh, we care about this and we're going to do something about this. You have to say, no, here are concrete numbers that we have to show that we truly do care about you, the consumer, and we care about the community. So measurement is going to be important here. I think there's a lot of work to be done, too, on understanding how do we measure social impact through these partnerships. But it's, it's a good thing to, to keep in mind as you're kind of shifting your, your methodology around sponsorship. And interestingly, some of the, the measurement of social impact, as you mentioned at the start of the show with the 84 LA Olympics, that social impact can last long after the brand and the rights holder have finished their association, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a legacy. Yeah, you know, the LA 84 was such a great example because the legacy of that event still lives on today. So that, to me, that seems like an opportunity for anybody who's getting into sponsorship right now is you can build out partnerships and you can build out sponsorship activations that could have an impact on people in the planet for years after the sponsorship is over, right? Isn't that kind of amazing and that, that opportunity to, to make a positive impact on people? Absolutely. I think brands and rights holders should genuinely be excited about those opportunities. Now, 
John, we talked about the, the conscious consumer before, and we know people are engaged with, with social causes more and more these days. And that leads us into the fifth principle of three win sponsorship, and that is ownership. Tell us about the opportunities there are to engage or recruit, and, and I use the word recruit lightly, recruit fans to, to help with the marketing in a sponsorship and truly engage them around the cause. Yeah, th- this is a big opportunity. I, I think the where sponsorship falls down and, and doesn't uh, doesn't do such a great job is in getting the engagement of the target market, right? The target market needs to feel like it has ownership over this partnership, right? It, it can contribute to a positive impact in the world, right? So I would say that uh, in terms of inviting fans in and getting uh, getting them excited. There's a there was a great example that I loved coming out of T-Mobile and Major League Baseball's partnership uh, about two or three years ago. And you may recall in the U.S. in 2017, we had a really, really bad hurricane season. So Hurricane Harvey hit Texas and Houston, Texas, particularly bad. And also Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico really, really bad and, and made such a a devastating impact on on the island, and T-Mobile had already already been the presenting sponsor of the, of the home run derby for Major League Baseball. They had also kind of been the official wireless carrier. But when the hurricanes hit, they said, "Let's do something to make uh, to to raise funds and to make a positive impact for the people who had been affected by the hurricanes." But they did it in a really creative way. They created something called home runs for hurricane recovery hashtag HR for HR. And during major league baseball's postseason, anytime that a player hit a home run, it would trigger a donation by T-Mobile to a nonprofit called team Rubicon, which enables, which essentially is an organization that does disaster relief on the ground. And it actually gets veterans on the ground, helping the community start to recover from the hurricane. Basically, a fan watching the game could see T-Mobile making contributions, but then any fan on social media could use the hashtag HR for HR, and it would trigger another smaller donation by T-Mobile to Team Rubicon. So maybe $5 initially, and then I think they made it $10 uh, later in the postseason around the World Series. But think about it. you know. I remember watching the MLB postseason and, and using the hashtag myself because it felt pretty good to to make you know T-Mobile make a donation uh, to help <laughs> people in need. Right? Anytime I can get a brand to spend their money, I would take that advantage, <laughs> uh, take that opportunity. So, but but that is what I mean by ownership. Is I felt like I was a part of that activation, right? And as you think about you know. Your listeners, as you know, you're practicing sponsorship out in the field. Think about ways to really get your fans excited and engaged, and, and get them to feel like they are a part of it. You know, it's not about you as a brand; it's about the fan. It's about the person you're talking to. How do you make them feel like they're the hero of the story? Well, speaking of. Along those lines, content still plays a huge role. We mentioned that the content phase of sponsorship was from the the 2000s to the mid-2010s, but clearly content is still a large part of sponsorships, particularly when 
brands are working with rights holders to try and activate their sponsorships. What sort of special considerations do you think there are for brands and rights holders that they need to take into consideration and be mindful of when creating content around three win sponsorships and the causes involved, particularly if we try and link it back to that that authenticity? I think I, I, I'll reiterate what I just kind of hit on in the T-Mobile example, that when you're creating content, it's not about you and your brand. It's about the target market. It's about the consumer. It's about the fan, right? When you're creating content, you want to inspire and engage and, and make the fan feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves, not like they're a part of another advertisement, right? People hate advertisements, all right? You don't want people to feel like this is just another ad. So content creation through 3-1 sponsorship, I really think about it as an opportunity to tell an inspiring story, right? To basically, as a brand, root on the people who are doing great work in the cause area that you're a part of, right? Make it so that it doesn't feel like an advertisement. More so, it feels like, a movement or it feels like, you know, a, a really special opportunity, right? So what you're going for, going for it with content creation and these sponsorships is not look at how great our brand is. It's look at how great you are, the fan of the team, or look at how great this athlete is that we support and look at what the athlete and that athlete's fans have done together to, to support a cause. So remember, it's not about you. It's about the audience. There is some risk with aligning to causes. I know you spoke earlier about there's a risk of brands not taking causes on because that's what the conscious consumer is looking for these days. But on the flip side, there is some risk with aligning to causes, maybe some more than others. We recently saw Gillette's tagline, get a facelift, as they shifted from the best a man can get to is this the best a man can get. And that coincided with the launch of a social responsibility campaign, which they called the best men can be. A lot of men, some women as well, were offended and and outraged, which seems to be the norm these days, particularly on social media. And there was a reasonable amount of negative PR associated with it. Obviously, heaps of really positive stuff that outweighed it. But a lot of that negative stuff occurred on, on social media. I'm curious, do you think brands are, are spending significant time assessing the risks and, and then making a go, no-go decision or or are they just being strong and committed to a cause despite the risk because they want to do the the right thing? And, and I'm, I think I'm also curious about whether you think some brands might be getting scared off. I don't doubt that some brands are getting scared off. I mean, the Gillette campaign was definitely a bit polarizing the way that they presented it. And I do think that brands should absolutely do a thorough risk analysis before they take on certain causes, right? I I think proceed with caution is a good way to think about it. But I want to go back to the point around, you know, the risk in not taking a stand, right? When you don't take, when you don't stand for anything as a company outside of growth and profits, it's really going to reflect back uh, on how consumers respond to you, right? What you want to do as a company is to take a stand that you, your company, your employees, your customers 
really believe in and then stick with it over a long period of time, right? You don't want to just have a, a flavor of the month attitude, right? And just say, oh, now we believe in this thing. Now we believe in that cause. And, you know, here's a new thing that we're, no, I would encourage all companies to really think about what are the one, two, or three things that you can really genuinely say, this is our purpose. This is what we believe in. This is what our customers and employees believe in. We are going to push forward on that, and we're in it for the long haul. I, I would say one of the, the coolest examples of a really high-risk cause that a company uh, got into this past year was actually Dick's Sporting Goods here in the U.S. and, and their stance on gun control. And if you look it up, their, their CEO, and I'm blanking on his name, but their CEO, he saw the Parkland shooting in Florida on Valentine's Day in, in 2018. And he just said, enough is enough. He was really, really emotional seeing that. And Dick Sporting Goods literally pulled guns off of the shelves at their stores, right? This was a big part of their business. It is a very successful part of their business. But they said, you know what? We don't, we can't be a part of any more children, uh, you know, being affected by gun violence in our country enough. So they did it. They got tons and tons of backlash, you know, no question. There's a, a part of the population that felt like they were, you know, just whatever they were, they were just, not, they were uh, falling down and, and um, being affected by, you know, first amendment rights uh, and, and all that. But they reinvested their business. That's the important part. They took a stand, and then they realized they could reinvest in their business into other areas uh, that would help them grow. And, and I would say that the company is really better for it, even though they took a, a hit financially and there was some risk in taking that stand. I think they feel a lot better about who they are as a company, and a lot of consumers here in the U.S. responded well to that. Absolutely. That makes complete sense. John, you are very focused in the book to make this all as actionable for people as possible, and that involves examining the role that that talent, properties, and brands can play to to continue and to help usher in this new phase of purpose and, and cause-driven marketing in sports and entertainment. Now, it might be a little bit hard to compress it down, but but I'm, I'm hoping you can give it your best shot. What What role can each of those play? I would encourage people to pick up the book and, and read through this, but I, I would use an example of an American football game. And I know you have a very international audience, Daniel, but, but I think people can, can pick up on the analogy. So in an, uh, an American football game, you know, we, we have the quarterback, the person who's kind of the face of the team. And as the quarterback goes, so goes everyone else. And I really see that in this new era of, of kind of purpose-driven marketing, I think that talent, you know, the athlete, the entertainer, the musician, I think talent is really going to quarterback us forward on big social issues, right? It, it's it's more and more. And there's a long history of athletes taking a stand on big social issues, but never before have athletes really been able to make money by taking a stand. And, and just look at what Megan Rapino from the U.S. Women's National Team uh, did during the world cup last summer, you know, she was performing extremely well on the field, but she was also fighting for women's equality off the field. And, and now she's getting all kinds of uh, sponsorship endorsements because of that. So I really think t talent, uh, you know, the professional athlete, they're kind of going to be the quarterback and, and to continue the analogy, 
as a property, if you're with a team or a league, I really see you as being kind of the playing field or the platform on which we convene around causes. So I, I see, you know, if your role is that you sell sponsorship for a team or for a league, think about how do I use the platform that my team or league has to convene people and bring people around and, and leverage our platform in the community to do good. And then finally, as a brand, I think of the brands that are going to be successful in this era of, of three-one sponsorship. They're the ones who are going to be the fans, right? And in an American football game, the fans are, are everything, right? They're, they kind of are the reason for being. But as a brand, you want to act like a fan with your sponsorship by cheering on the athletes and the, your, your target market, right? Cheering them on and providing resources and telling stories that inspire people. I think that brands that take that principle of it's not about us, it's about you, the consumer, they're going to be the ones who, who are really successful. So I don't know if that made sense, Daniel, the uh, talent as a quarterback, the property as a playing field, and the brands as the fans. Hopefully that, that made sense. Absolutely. But that's kind of how I see the, the rules breaking down as we go forward. Excellent. I love how you've tied that together with that analogy. And I've loved this topic just just generally. And I know three win is a great way to frame it all. But it really is amazing if brands can have sponsorships that, that help them with their marketing properly, but also help causes and charities and not-for-profit organizations that do so much great work helping the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people in our community. So before we round out this chat, John, I'd love another, just for the listeners, just so that we can get another feel-good example, I'd love another uh, example of one of your favorite three-win sponsorships. There's two really great recent examples, Daniel, from the NBA here in the U.S. And I mentioned how talent are quarterbacking these big social issues. Well, let me give you two examples of how that's, that's breaking down. So Stephen Curry, the, the NBA superstar from the Golden State Warriors, you may have seen that he made a donation to Howard University here in Washington, actually, to fund their golf program. And he, he really believes in increasing diversity and access to the game of golf. So Steph made this donation to really fund Howard's program, but then he went and did a endorsement deal with Callaway golf. And in the announcement of that deal, they said that Steph Curry and Callaway are going to team up to increase the access for the game of golf to people from underrepresented communities. Right. And I felt like that was so cool that the purpose of that deal was to increase diversity and access to the game. And it's not, it's not your traditional deal, right? It's clearly, you know, exemplifying some of those three win pr principles we've talked about. And then just this week, you know, we're, we're talking uh, in early March, LeBron James, uh, the other massive superstar that everyone should know from the NBA, he announced an endorsement deal with AT&T. And as a big part of that endorsement deal, AT&T is actually making a contribution to the LeBron James Family Foundation to help build a learning institution at the I Promise Village in Akron, Ohio. And, and LeBron has done amazing work. I'd encourage everyone to go look up I Promise. But AT&T, through that endorsement deal, is going to be uh, basically providing the funds to build a learning facility uh, for young people and for families there in Akron. 
I thought that was really cool. I thought it was a, an awesome template for other sponsor professionals who want to see like, how do I, how do I start implementing? There's two great examples for you. Absolutely. John, before we let people know where they can get their hands on the book, I thought it might, I would give you the opportunity to outline what they can expect from it when they pick it up and read it. I would hope that you get some inspiration to use sponsorship for good, right? That's what I really felt like was the purpose of this book is I want to get you excited about this idea that, you know, sponsorship is more than just business. You know, it's more than just a marketing activity. It can be something that uh, can really make a positive impact on people and on the planet. So I hope that when you pick up a book, that's what you get out of it. Excellent. Okay. So where can people go to get a copy of the book? And also maybe if they want to connect with you and keep the conversation going, what can they do? Where can they go? Yes, I absolutely look forward to, to talking with people. You can find the book on Amazon.com. That's probably the easiest way. And type in 3-win sponsorship. Very easy. My name and my book should come right up. But also uh, definitely connect with me on Twitter. It's just at John Balcom. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm also very active and would love to connect with you. And really, I, I also encourage people. I continued my writing habit and, and I'm putting out a newsletter called win, win, win. So uh, really for people who consider themselves to be purpose-driven leaders in the sports entertainment industry, I, I write something once a week for you all. Uh, so go check that out at thirdwin.substack.com. And I really am excited to, to connect with you. Absolutely. And listeners, I highly recommend that you subscribe to, to John's weekly emails. They, it's great to keep this front of mind and, and they're just genuinely uh, interesting reads. And of course, we'll, we'll put links up to all that stuff, the Twitter, the LinkedIn profiles. And of course, John, it would be unfair if we didn't put up a link to the book. So John Balcom, author of Three Win Sponsorship, the next generation of sports and entertainment marketing. Congratulations on the book. It, it, it's, it's a fantastic read. And thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It was a pleasure. That's a wrap for episode 81, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope that chat with John has really inspired you, no matter what side of the fence you sit on, to look for three-win sponsorships. And of course, be sure to grab a copy of the book. It really is a great read with lots more of those awesome examples John shared and a step-by-step -step guide for being successful with three-win sponsorships. Of course, just head to the show notes at coresoftware.com and under podcasts, which are under the resources in the main menu. I've provided a link to the book as well as those other things like John's social profiles, website, and of course, the amazing video of Hellman's Feed the Stadium that John spoke about. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you do, I'll make sure I'll give you a shout out on the show, just like I did for Alex at Clemson University. And if you want to connect with Core Software's Director for Customer Strategy and Success, Australasia, Sam Irvine, you can catch him on sam.irvine at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Until next time. I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, eBooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.